Great. Morning, everyone. Um, have a look at John chapter 1 if you can, or find it on your Bible or your phone if you've got one. And let me turn to it. <clears throat> Great. Okay, so um, this is the first Sunday of Advent. It's four weeks to go. Four weeks today is Christmas Day. Um, and this passage, John chapter 1, is a well-known passage that is read very often at Carol services and in Advent services as well. Um, and um, it's kind of in the order of service. It's read, be read in churches all over the country, all over the world, in fact, um, through this Christmas time, because it's got a very strong Advent mass message in it, um, even a Christmas message in it. Um, it's a really profound passage. There's so much content and depth in it. In fact, it's one of my favorite passages and one I memorized quite a long time ago. Um, I memorized it in the NIV, actually, so when I have to really concentrate in the ESV because it's slightly different. So if I misquote it at any time, use the NIV, just forgive me um, for that. Um, but uh, I do recommend memorizing scripture to get it really inside your heart, inside your soul, forces you to meditate on it and really gets it inside you. So I'm really glad I did that um, some while ago. And this passage has immense apologetic value. I've called it, I don't know if you can read that bit at the bottom there, which is kind of a bit hidden by the, the uh, music stands, but it says the revelation of the word. That's my title for today, the revelation of the word. And this passage answers um, fundamental questions um, about life. How come there is something rather than nothing? That's an important question. You have never thought about it? How come this, but some people say that's the most profound question we've got to answer. How come there is something rather than nothing? It'd be much easier and simpler if there was nothing. But there's something. How come? Right? Um, where did we come from? Profound question as well. Is there a God? What is God like? If there is a God. Does God understand the human condition? Does he know what it's like? Does he understand humanity? Does life really matter? What's the purpose of life? Does it really matter? What does God want? What is the purpose of life? All of these questions are answered in this passage today. All of them. Um, it's got the gospel in a nutshell. It's got the whole summary of the Christian worldview in a nutshell. It answers life's ultimate questions. So let's read it. I'm going to read from verse 1 of John chapter 1. Reading in the ESV. Just let me put it up there. There we go. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all men might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people 
did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Okay, so let's start with the first um, phrase here in this. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the word. And we learn there that the word was right there at the beginning. It's fairly obvious, perhaps, but anyway, that's what it says. In the beginning. And of course, this takes us straight back to Genesis, doesn't it? You know, because Genesis said, in the beginning, God. And this says, in the beginning was the word. What is the word? You're immediately wondering, aren't you? What is the word? The Greek word is logos, from which we get our word logic. So it's kind of reason, maybe reason. Um, maybe sort of expression, concept, conceptualization, something like that is kind of what it means. It's a complex idea. We'll stick with word for now. <laughs> but J.B. Phillips tried to sort of paraphrase it, and he put it this way. He said, at the beginning, God expressed himself. And that personal expression, that word, was with God and was God. That's quite a good paraphrase of it. All Jonathan Edwards said, the word is like God's idea of himself. But here we're getting the word always existed. The word was there at the beginning. The word was there before the beginning. The other gospels, when they start the story of Jesus, they start with Jesus' birth or maybe with John the Baptist. But John says, no, 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 you can't start there. You're going to start with Jesus. You're going to start right at the beginning. And we've got to start from understanding that Jesus, the word, was at the beginning. Right? The word was eternal. He was right there. This is profound. Jesus' life didn't start at his birth. Didn't even start at his conception. It started right back. Didn't even start, actually. Sorry. Didn't even start. Right? Didn't even start. Right? It was eternal. His life was eternal. And, um, and the universe had a beginning, the Bible teaches. The universe had a beginning. And uh, most people would agree with this now. They didn't always. My, one of my favorite arguments for the existence of God is based on a beginning. It's called the Kalam Cosmological Argument. Don't worry about the name. <laughs> and it argues like this. It starts by saying, first of all, everything that begins to exist has a cause. Do you agree with that? If you don't agree with that, you're thinking things just spring into existence. Okay, I think you're probably mad if you disagree with that. So most people agree with that. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. Point one. Point two, the universe began to exist. We'll establish that in a minute, but a lot of people leave that. Therefore, conclusion, the universe has a cause. And that cause is outside the universe and outside time. It's God. There we go. There's a God. All right? Now, how do we know the universe had a beginning? We didn't always, people didn't always think this. I'm going to give you two scientific reasons and one philosophical reason for knowing that the universe had a beginning. All right? Um, the first scientific reason is um, based on Big Bang Theory. So scientists didn't always think this. Scientists, quite a popular theory a few years back was steady state theory. 
The idea that the universe has just always existed, always been around. Okay? Then scientists kind of changed their mind more recently because they observed redshift in the stars. And the redshift seems to think that the universe, or, or show that the universe, is expanding. And if the universe is expanding, well, it can't have been expanding forever, can it? Right? So you sort of extrapolate back and say, well, after you know, you know, some millions and millions, maybe even billions of years, the universe must have begun. And then they call the beginning the Big Bang. Okay? Have you heard of the Big Bang? A few nods there. Some of you might even believe it, the Big Bang. I don't believe the Big Bang myself, but we won't get into that for now. Okay? <laughs> but you know, suffice to say that if you want to create something beautiful and orderly, you don't start with an explosion. Okay? Explosions don't create something beautiful and orderly. Okay? But you might believe the Big Bang, fine, or your friend might believe the Big Bang. My point is this, the Big Bang needs a big banger, somebody to start it off. Right? You've got to have something to start the Big Bang off, and therefore, and that's God. Right? We had a few little bangs, didn't we, at the firework night a few weeks back, right? Some quite big bangs as well, yes, fair enough, but none of them quite big enough to start a whole universe off, all right? But every single one of them, somebody had to light the fuse, didn't they? Right? Everyone, somebody had to start it off. Somebody, you can't have a big bang without a big banger, okay? You get that now, right? It's true, right? It's true. The second side of the argument is this one. The universe, according to the second law of thermodynamics, must be gradually winding itself to, down in terms of the energy must be gradually dissipating. So if you think about this, the stars eventually will die out, won't they? Right? And all the movement will eventually cease, won't it? If we give it long enough, in enough billions and millions of years, eventually it will all die out and we will get to a state of what we call heat death, where everything is still and there's no more light, there's no more heat, there's no more energy. But we're not there. Oh, we, the stars are still shining. There's light in this room. There's a bit of movement in this room as well, right? So we haven't got to that far yet, which means that we must have had a beginning, right? Because the world hasn't ended. The universe hasn't stopped moving. The lights haven't stopped shining. So there must have been a beginning. And a beginning requires a beginner, somebody to begin it, somebody to start it all off. So therefore, there's a God to get that one. Then the last argument is a philosophical one. F philosophical, this is my favorite one. Okay, I'm just reading another book about this. I find it really, really interesting. This argues that you can't have an infinity amount of time before you get to here. Right? The way to explain this is to say this. Let's say you met somebody and they said, I've just finished counting to infinity. You say, no, no, no. You see, you're laughing. You can't count to infinity. That's the point of infinity. You can't count to infinity. You can never finish counting to infinity. So we can't have had an infinity of time before now. It's impossible. Therefore, time began. And it needed a beginner. Are you learning? Are you getting this now? Yeah? If you want to talk more about that, I'll just summarize a very complicated argument. There's a few sentences, right? I'll talk for hours about it after church with any of you who want to just form an orderly queue. But the point is, you know, that there was a beginning. The Bible has been right all along. Scientists and philosophers agree now there was a beginning. And if there was a beginning, there must have been a beginner, and that beginner was God. In the beginning was the Word. And Hebrews 13.8 says this, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Because Jesus didn't begin to exist. I made that mistake kind of half deliberately, right? So he doesn't need a cause, right? So he didn't begin to exist. He's always been. And so is, and God's always been, right? 
He is the ultimate cause and the ultimate beginner of the universe. And so um, the next thing we learn is that he's divine. Same phrase. Okay, the word was God. In the beginning, God. So this isn't just a force. This isn't just a concept. Actually, God. Actually, unity with God. doesn't say the word was a God, which the German citizens down the road try and claim. No. It says the word was God. doesn't say God was the word either. It's not the whole of God. That is the word. It says the word was God. Subtle difference there. It's interesting that even in the first century, Philo, a Jewish writer, understood that there were different personalities in God and thought that the Logos was a kind of separate divine personality in God. Jesus is actually God. Later in John's Gospel, Thomas says, my Lord and my God to Jesus. He recognises that Jesus is God. Last week, we baptised people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, if we got it right. (laughs) (laughs) The Trinity, all three are God. Okay. And then we're thinking the word, and suddenly you're a bit surprised if you're reading it for the first time, because it actually says he, not it, the word, he. This pronoun suddenly makes you realize it's personal. This word is actually a person. It's not just a force or an abstract thing. It's a person. Sorry, he's a person. The word, he. He was in the beginning with God. How many of you know pronouns matter? Right? It's interesting. How many of you have been asked to declare your pronouns? Some people have. Yes, some of you. I know Christina was asked to, she's not here today, she was asked to declare her pronouns and she asked me what to do. And I said, you could say your pronoun is your Royal Highness. And she thought she might try that. I don't know what happened. Um, but, um, you know, but, you know, we have these pronouns, he and she. And then some people say, I want, don't want to, I want to be gender neutral or something. We do have a gender neutral pronoun. It's it. But I've never met anybody who wants to be called it. Why is that? Because it's impersonal, right? Everybody wants to be a person, don't they? Nobody wants to deny their personality, right? So they go for my pronouns are they, them, which is also wrong. You should say our pronouns are they, them, because it's plural, okay? But, but people want to still try and say single. But actually, you don't get to choose your pronouns, right? Because you're made. I don't get to choose how old I am, even. I had a birthday recently. Sometimes think I quite like to choose how old I am. But I don't get to choose how old I am. I don't get to choose my gender. Don't get to choose my parents. Don't get to choose my brother and sister. A load of things I don't get to choose about myself. And I, one of them is I don't get to choose my pronouns. And so I don't want to go along with this idea that declaring pronouns, because you don't get to choose your pronouns in the same way you don't get to choose your age and things. Pronouns matter. This is a personal God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, he, 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 if you need to know the pronouns, person, 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 Trinity. He was in the beginning with God. That's relationship right there. 
relationship in God. This is a contrast, by the way, with Allah. Allah is totally non-relational. Allah, the, the Islamic God, is just a monad. And that's it. There's no personality. There's no personhood. There's no way of relating. There's no personal relationship with Allah. But we have a personal, relational God who has been in relationship for all eternity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in fellowship, in relationship. Personal, personal God who's interested, therefore, in relationship. What else do you learn about the Word? The Word is the Creator. All things were made through Him. All things. What does that leave out? All things. The world, the heavens, the planets, the stars, the galaxies, angels, demons, heaven, hell. Everything made through the Word, through Jesus. Remember Genesis 1, in the beginning was God, and then it says, and God said, let there be light. Word. God said, word. Creation. God said, let animals come out. Creation. The word. In the beginning was the word. All things were made through the word. And God said this. And God said that. Evidence for the creator, of course, comes from design and beauty in the world. There's so much Evidence for design, incredible design, incredible beauty all around you in the universe shows there's a creator, doesn't it? Shows there's a creator. There's a little clip going around at the moment on the internet of Ronald Reagan, former president of the United States, that maybe you've seen it. And in this clip, Ronald Reagan says, I just don't understand atheists, he says. And what I'd really like to do one day is invite a few atheists around for dinner and provide them with a massive, incredible, beautiful, gourmet dinner and then ask them, do you believe in a cook? So it's kind of the same thing, isn't it, right? You know, somebody's made this. Obviously, somebody's made it, right? There's a maker. There's a creator. There's so much design and beauty and freedom. And we can create things and make things that are beautiful. But we need a creator for that. There is a creator. And Jesus is the creator. And if he's the creator, then everything is ultimately dependent on him. If it wasn't for him, there wouldn't be anything. You know, why is there something rather than nothing? Because God made it. God decided to make stuff, make a world, make a universe, make the planets, make everything. Actually made it out of nothing. People are looking for a grand unifying theory in science to match all the physics and biology and everything else. Actually, the grand unifying explanation is Jesus. Actually, he's the one that holds it all together. Hebrews 11.3 says this, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. So that what is seen was made out of things that are not visible. Made out of things that are not visible. Colossians 1.16 says this, By him, that's Jesus, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and by him, in him all things hold together. Everything made by Jesus, everything held together by Jesus. It's like the, uh, what's standing behind gravity? Ultimately, it's Jesus, right? What's standing behind the micro forces and the molecules and the atoms? Ultimately, it's Jesus. What is holding your body together? It's Jesus. What's holding this building together? 
ultimately it's Jesus. If it wasn't for Jesus, there wouldn't be anything. You wouldn't have anything. You know, Jepson was trying to say earlier that God is so, so much in control, so much in presence, so much that it's not difficult for him to do things. That's right, because he's holding every molecule of your body together. He's holding every atom of this universe together. All things held together through him because he created it all. The word is the creator. By the word of the Lord, by the word of the Lord, the heavens are made, Psalm 33. What about the next one? Life-giving word. Here I prefer a translation in the NEB, which is uh, New English Bible, which is similar to the footnote in the ESV, where it says, all that came to be was alive with his life. That's how all the Nicene fathers translated this verse. All that came to be was alive with his life. Where does life come from? How did life get on the planet? It's one thing to have molecules and atoms and things and mass and all that kind of stuff. It's quite another thing to have life. Where does life start from? I was in discussion um, with some people in a dinner party a few weeks back, and um, they were very excited about the idea. Even though planet Earth is sort of exactly the right size and distance from the stars and the moon, everything to have you know, the right conditions for life, they were like, there must be another planet somewhere in the universe that is, has all those conditions, and there would be life on it, and it'd be really interesting to see it. And I said, well, even if there is a planet with all those conditions, it doesn't just mean that life would come to there. Well, how does life arise? How does life start? You can't evolve life out of non-life. Evolution starts with some life, if you believe evolution. You've got to start with an incredibly complicated single cell, we call them a simple cell, that's a misnomer, an incredibly complicated single cell that can replicate itself. And then if you get there, then maybe you can think about evolution, right? But where does that first replicating, complicated, single cell come from? Where does that first living organism start from? Where does it start from? Evolution can't explain that, right? How do you get life on this planet? Well, it has to come from a life giver, doesn't it? It has to come from a life giver, the life. Some people think if you mix enough chemicals, you get, get a single cell. I mean, a single cell is, is rated to be more complicated than all the telecommunication systems of the globe, right? It's a very, very complicated thing itself in terms of what it controls and what it can do and what kind of, just one single cell. All that DNA, right, which is a whole load of information that's, in a single cell. It's a bit, if you think about mixing chemicals and getting a single cell, it's a bit like saying, if you had a junkyard and you had all the parts of an airplane in the junkyard and you sent a hurricane into that junkyard, you'd end up with an airplane. That's not how it happens, right? You can't do that. Even if you had all the right parts, all there, and a hurricane, you, know, you can't just mix all that together and get an airplane. Neither can you mix a bunch of chemicals together and get a cell, a living, self-replicating cell with all that DNA and all that stuff. You can't do it, can't be done. Humans have been trying, even without just mixing it with a hurricane, humans have been trying to create life, they can't do it. I don't think they'll ever be able to do it. It's very, very complicated life. Do you know some people say DNA, DNA's got all this information in it, a huge amount of information, like the amount of information in your DNA is far more than the entire Encyclopedia Britannica multiple times. It's information. Information 
doesn't arise by chance. Did you know that? Information doesn't arise by chance. If you made a random change to the information in a book, you would lose information. You wouldn't gain information, you'd lose information. Right? Richard Dawkins tried to say, if you've got enough monkeys typing on typewriters, you could eventually type out all the information. Right? So let me just think about that a minute, because I want to show how wrong he is. Okay? So let's imagine a typewriter that's got 27 keys on it. Are you with me on this? A, B, C, D, through the Z, and a space bar. Forget punctuation, capitalization, okay? And the monkey's typing on this 27-key typewriter, right? We want, him to get, we want this monkey to get the first 100 characters of Hamlet on this typewriter, okay? So what's the probability he gets the first character right on a 27-key keyboard? Not a difficult question. Fantastic, you're great, you guys. <laughs> and, and then the second character? One in 27 again. So you've got to multiply those two together to get the two characters. The first two characters is one in 27 times one in 27. That's one in 27 squared, right? First three characters? One in 27. Yes, so it's now one in 27 cubed. Brilliant. So I think I can jump ahead now rather than take you through all that. The first 100 characters, one in 27 to the power 100, right? 27 to the power 100 is a gigantic, gigantic number. Did you know the entire universe is meant to have 10 to the power of 80 fundamental particles, protons in it, according to scientists. So 27 to the power 100 is 1.4 times 10 to the 143. In other words, if you wrote it out as decimal number, 143 digits, it's a gigantic, huge number. To try and understand how huge it is, let's say every single proton in that universe in our universe, was a typewriter, a monkey typewriter. And they were typing away at a speed of 500 characters a minute. They would need 20 billion years. That's the age of the universe. And you still wouldn't have a chance of getting the first 100 characters. You would actually need 3 times 10 to the 46 parallel universes to get a chance of having the first 100 characters of Shakespeare. In other words, it would never happen. It would never happen, right? It would never, never happen. And that's just the first 100 characters, right? How much more information is there in your DNA? This did not happen by chance. This did not, this did not for certain, did not happen by chance, for certain, right? It needed a designer. It needed a God-giver. It needed life. Life came from life. In him was life. In, in him was life, the life-giving God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You got it. The life. <clears throat> and in the light of the word, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not understood it. Overcome it in this version, sorry. What does light do? Light reveals. Light reveals things, doesn't it? If we didn't have the lights on in this room and the blinds are down, you wouldn't be able to see very much. Light reveals, and so spiritual light gives spiritual revelation, doesn't it? Spiritual revelation. Shows what sin is. Shows what's true. Convicts, guides, leads, exposes, exposes the darkness. And this light is powerful. It's so much more powerful than the darkness. 
You just need one little candle and you can see in a whole room when it was dark before. As the nights get longer, we value light more and more. We turn on lights more and more because we want to see how hungry are we for spiritual light that reveals, that shows, that shines, that leads us, that guides us. And darkness and evil are defeated or overcome by the spiritual light of the word. And Jesus said, I am the light of the world. <clears throat> and then it talks about John the Baptist. And says there was a man sent from God, his name was John, and he came as a witness to bear witness about that light that all men might believe through him. Witnessing. John was witnessing to the word. Witnessing. What is a witness? A witness is a legal term. It's a courtroom term for somebody who comes and says what they saw. Says what they saw. What did you see? What's your experience? All of you, if you're Christians today, have got your own experience to tell, your own story to tell of what Jesus has done for you. All of you can be, will be, called as witnesses by somebody in this world. What's your story? What's Jesus done for you? What do you believe about God? And then you have an opportunity to witness. Witnessing, somebody said, is the whole work of the whole church for the whole age. And we should be looking for opportunities to witness to the people around us. Notice the aim here that all might believe through him. All might believe through him. God's desire is for everyone to believe, but he wants to use us to do that. He wants to use us to do it. He wants to use you. He wants you to be one of the witnesses, as he calls, before the jury of someone's own heart. Right? To, here's someone who's got a story to tell. Here's someone who's got their own experience to tell. How are you going to witness? I was praying for some fresh stories to tell about this for today and yesterday. That's fresh, isn't it? Yesterday. Um, yesterday, I was in a meeting with um, a regathering of people who've been on the Wilberforce Academy, which was in September. Jefferson and Diana were there. And, um, and this lady stood up, young lady, Charlotte. And she said that she, in front of all these people, she said she'd been inspired by a talk that I gave, yikes, in September. And so she decided she really needed to find a way to tell her work colleagues about how God has transformed her life. And so she went back to her workplace and booked a room and organized a meeting and got it all approved by HR and invited all her work colleagues, if you want to come and see it here, how God's transformed my life, come to this meeting, right? And 10 people came to the meeting, two Hindus, a Muslim, her boss, her boss's boss, and she told them how God had transformed her life. How many of you know that takes courage to do that? How many of you have done that in the workplace? That takes courage to do that, doesn't it? Wow, right? And it was really well received. I mean, people were asking questions, can I have lunch with you and talk about it a bit more? You know, I really want to hear more about this. She taught, and there was supernatural healing in the testimony, all of that kind of thing going on. It was incredibly um, well done. I thought, wow, what a brave lady. And I'd love to stop there, but I ought to tell the rest of the story. Because having had an appraisal just a few weeks before that was very positive, a week later she's put on a six-week review 
in her workplace. And a week after that, she was dismissed. Wow. Wow. Right? And when she told this story yesterday, she quoted me and said, because Tim said, <laughs> God's more interested in developing your character than in developing your career. Wow. Isn't that? God's more interested in developing your character than in developing your career. And God is definitely developing her character through that. Wow. And, and will be. What a brave, incredible woman to do that. And God's providing a new job for her now. And I'm excited to see what God does through her. Another chap who was there yesterday, Ramin, you may remember, he was the husband of um, Libby, who came and spoke here in the summer. And Ramin said he was asked to contribute to the DNI program, diversity and inclusion program in his workplace. And they actually asked him, would you do the talk about LGBT um, stuff in the workplace? And so he politely said, actually, I'm not sure I'm the best person to talk about that subject, but I would like to talk about being a Christian in the workplace. Would that fit into your program? And they said, yes. So he got to give a whole talk about what it was like being a Christian in the workplace. Now he prays for his workplace and prays for his work college. What a fantastic witnessing opportunity he had. So I want to ask you, what are you going to do this Advent to witness to your non-Christian friends, neighbours, colleagues, relatives, proactively, what are you going to do? Right? It, it might take a lot of courage to do what they did, but it doesn't take that much courage to invite someone to a carol service, for example. Right? It doesn't take that much courage. And what are you going to do proactively this Christmas to witness to the word? Because it's a great opportunity, Christmas, and God wants you to be a witness and is calling all of us um, to witness to him. So then we get to the world's reaction to the word. He came to his own and, shocking, surprising, his own people did not receive him. Given all we've learned about the word, he's eternal, he's divine, he's personal, he's a creator, and people witness to him, you're sort of expecting, wow, it must be fantastic when he comes to the world. But no, his own people did not receive him. How disappointing. How incredible, how shocking is that? How could it be that people who want to know the truth, surely, people who want to, would love to meet God if they could, and yet he comes and they don't? How can this be? Why can this be? How can God almost fail like this? They did not want to know him. They did not receive him. In fact, they rejected him. John 3.19 says, this is the verdict. Light has come into all the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. We'll read that again because it's quite profound, isn't it? This is the verdict. Light has come into all the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. It's shocking. It's appalling. It's incredible. It's heartbreaking. But people loved evil, people loved darkness rather than God. And it's still true today. People love darkness rather than light. People rebel against God. People don't want to know about God. Something has gone wrong. People love darkness rather than light. How can people love darkness rather than light? And yet they do, and God's given us the freedom. God's given people the freedom so they can 
choose to love darkness. What a mad, crazy thing to do, to love darkness rather than light. He came, he came into the world, and yet people did not receive him, and yet even still today, people are not receiving him 2,000 years later. Shocking, awful, incredible, disappointing, heartbreaking. But, in the next verse, there's a but, because it doesn't end there. But, not everyone rebelled, not everyone refused to receive him, but to all who did receive him, all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. But there is hope. Not everyone rejected Jesus. Some people accepted him, and still today, some people accept him. What do you have to do? Receive him and believe in his name. Receive him and believe in his name. That's all you have to do. Receiving, welcoming, welcoming the light. I don't want to be in darkness anymore. Welcoming the light, believing, acknowledging Jesus is Lord, trusting in Jesus, letting him be the root of your life, the, the, the thing you decide to trust. This kind of word believe means not just mental assertion, but actually uh, a trust as well. I can believe that chair holds my weight. It's only when I sit in it that I'm actually trusting it. I can believe Jesus is God. It's only when I decide to give my life to him, I'm trusting in him. Receiving and believing, because he has defeated the darkness. He wants to come and give you and me spiritual light and life and new birth. Gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent or of human decision or husband's will, but born of God. Quoting from the NIV there, sorry. Born of God. What is new birth? Incredible thing, right? New birth. It means a new start. You can start again. Start again. Start afresh. How would you like to start afresh? We all feel guilt for all the things we've done in the past. You can start again. You can start again. Amazing thing. You can be forgiven, cleansed, clothed, start again. We, we just sang, Heart the Held Angels Sing. What a profound song that is. I was just thinking about all the words. It's incredible. You could preach off every line of that song, I think. This line, born to give them second birth. Jesus, born to give people a second chance, a chance to start again. What an amazing thing that is. A little town of Bethlehem says, cast out our sin and enter in, be born in us today. Be born in us today. And, and, and children of God, a new family. Michelle was saying about that, you know, being a princess, a daughter of the king, the right to become children of God, children born of God, not a natural birth, a supernatural birth. That's what's on offer from Jesus to all of us. Finally, the incarnation of the Word. The Word, this is the most profound statement here. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word came into the world. That's incredible, right? He's the creator. He's the, he's the creator, eternal omnipresent, omniscient God, and he entered into the world. I, 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 I struggle to illustrate this. I mean, I, the only things I can sort of make is maybe a Lego model. But could I become a Lego person, Lego model? It doesn't work. It's not, it doesn't work as an illustration even, right? The eternal, omniscient, omnipresent God 
stepped into his world that he made. The word became flesh. Flesh and bones, right? Skin, bones, blood, muscles, sinews, nerves, all that stuff. It doesn't even say, doesn't say the word became a person. He already was a person. We learned that before from the pronouns, remember? Yeah? Doesn't even say he became a man, right? Because he doesn't want anybody to spiritualize this and say he's just a spiritual person. You can't just spiritualize and say Jesus is just spiritual. No, the word became flesh, flesh and bones. A body like you've got, a body that gets tired, a body that feels pain, a body that feels hunger and thirst and all of the other stresses and strains and relationships and all of that kind of stuff. Jesus inhabited a body, a human body like you've got. Jesus knows what it's like to be a human being. The word, the eternal word that spoke life, that is holding your body together, every molecule together, that word became flesh. It's an incredible thing, the most incredible thing. You can't have Easter without Christmas. This is the greatest miracle of all, the most outstanding, incredible miracle. C.S. Lewis calls it the grand miracle. Having created creation out of nothing, he then becomes part of his creation. And then John is even more amazed because he said, and he dwelt among us. Among us, ordinary people, fishermen, tax collectors, farmers, whoever else is around. He dwelt among ordinary people. He didn't even land in the Taj Mahal or the Buckingham Palace or whatever else. He landed in a manger, where you, some of you feed animals from. <laughs> and he landed in, in an ordinary woman's body and, a, and an ordinary birth. And that word dwell... You could translate it tabernacles, has connotations of the tabernacle of the Old Testament, which was also prefiguring Jesus becoming human, all the symbolism in that, and the temple as well, all prefiguring Jesus becoming a human being, a person, the word becoming flesh. He experienced what humanity is like. He knows what it's like to grow up. He knows what it's like to be a child. He knows what it's like to have family and brothers and parents who you didn't choose and friends who you didn't choose and neighbors you didn't choose and stresses, and tensions, and relationships, and hunger, and tiredness, and all of these things that we experience. And he shows us what a human being can be like, as well as showing us what God is like. The Word became flesh, that's Christmas. The Word became flesh, that's what we're celebrating at Christmas time. The Word, the Word, the eternal Incredible word became flesh. Let's stand and I'll pray. And I just, let's pray now, and I just want you to um, just connect with God yourself. And um, what is God saying to you today? I've challenged you today to proactively work out how you can witness this Advent season. So I just want you to, maybe you need to commit to God to do that. Maybe God is prompting you with an idea right now about how you can do that, or a person right now that you can try and witness to 
So I just want you to listen to God on that and uh, listen to those thoughts and ideas that are coming to your mind now about who you, with your own experiences and your own relationships, who you can witness to this Christmas time. Maybe there's someone here who hasn't actually received the new birth hasn't actually received the word into your life, hasn't actually experienced the new birth. Maybe you need to decide to do that today. Open up your heart today. Cast out sin and let God be born in your life today. Maybe you need to resolve to do that and then come and talk to me or one of the other people who's been up front today to pray through that and talk about that today. Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit, we're so grateful for you. We're so grateful for the word that you made it, that you created it, that you shone the light into the world and the light has overcome the darkness. We're so grateful that you, the word, became flesh, took on humanity, took on a body. We're so grateful for that incredible miracle. So grateful you know what it's like to be a human being. You know each and every person inside out. You're holding us together. You're the Alpha and the Omega, without beginning, without end. And we just love you. We worship you today. We want to adore you. We want to glorify you. I want to ask that you would use us, each one of us, this Christmas time to glorify you and witness to you, that we'd worship you, that we'd honor you. I want to pray that you'd prompt us to witness to what you've done in our lives. Give us courage and boldness afresh to do that. Give us individuals that we can share with, that we can relate to, that our experience will speak to. Let us be witnesses to you this Christmas time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>